Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Menashe. This is the weekend edition. We have a very special show for you today. Today's show was recorded live on location at the 20th Annual Investor Summit on Sand. This amazing conference brings together some of the best and brightest in the world for a full week of masterminding, relationship building, and building a sense of community. Enjoy today's presentation entitled, Developing in a Downturn. We're going to shift gears again. We shift gears a lot in this particular room. And uh, our next presenter uh, is a real estate investor. He's got a business background, which helps him think through things in different ways. Uh, he's got a ton of experience nationally, internationally. hails from Canada, but does a lot of real estate uh, in the U.S. And much of what he does is development. Redevelopment, rehab, ground-up development. And here to talk about how to develop in a downturn, whether we're about to have one or not, Please welcome back to the Investors Summit on Sand, Mr. Victor Minaj. Thank you, sir. Welcome to the 20th Annual Investor Summit. I mentioned that for a very deliberate reason. In 20 years, do you think there's a few economic cycles over that time period? A few, right? And irrespective of that, the summit has happened every year in good times or bad. So when you are thinking about the planning of your business, you have to assume that there's gonna be good times and bad. There's gonna be up cycles and down cycles. You, you, you have to really think about it in terms of it doesn't matter what's happening in the marketplace, your business goes forward no matter what. And that's the perspective that we take and that's what we're talking about today, but you still have to have your eyes wide open and be paying very close attention to the things that can be a, a bump in the road, or maybe even something that can kill you. You have to be paying attention and respond, react accordingly. Not every strategy works all the time in every market, as Tom Wilson eloquently said. I wrote the book Magnetic Capital, and I learned to raise capital in the tech industry. My background is as an engineer, like there's a few engineers here in the room. I started out designing microprocessors, and had a very interesting tech career. We designed, we have things in all kinds of different applications all over the world, in seat back displays on Airbus aircraft and the Patriot missile and, and uh, color printers and telecom switches and wireless base stations and all kinds of crazy stuff. And over that time period did five mergers and acquisition deals, one public offering and, um, and learned to raise a lot of capital in the tech industry. And then when I shifted into the world of real estate investing in around 2009, that was actually a good time to be playing offense in real estate. Not a great time to be playing defense, but it was a great time to be playing offense. And I had completely forgotten what I knew about raising capital. I went in, I spent my own money, ran out like everybody does, and then said, shoot, what do I do now? I need to raise money. So I had an inkling of how to do that, rediscovered the process and said, oh my goodness, it's exactly the same. And that was the impetus for writing the book. So it works not just in tech, not just in real estate, not just in funding a charity. The process of raising capital, the philosophy of raising capital is pretty much universal. So that's why I wrote the book. Also the host of the Real Estate Espresso podcast, daily show seven days a week. Uh, love to have you as a listener. But today we're here to talk about developing in a downturn. What do I do today? As Robert mentioned, I build stuff. Uh, probably 95% of what we do is new construction in multiple markets across the nation. 
Today in our pipeline, we have about 700 units of vertical construction and a couple of thousand acres of horizontal construction, mostly residential subdivisions. This is one of our projects that we're doing in my hometown, my goodness, but this is one of about a dozen projects that we're currently doing. That's a plot of a residential subdivision in Boise, Idaho. So question is, why do downturns happen? I think it's important to understand that. And you go through these cycles of supply and demand. I'm a huge believer in obeying the laws of physics and obeying the laws of economics. And this is the one law of economics that a lot of policymakers, a lot of politicians fail to obey. And by the way, sometimes a lot of investors fail to obey. And when you do, you do so at your peril. It's like jumping off a bridge if you, it, you know, bad things happen if you don't obey the laws of supply and demand. But it's not just the laws of supply and demand. There's one more thing that's vitally important. It's obeying the laws of supply and demand and ability to pay. It's and ability to pay. People go into market to say, well, vacancy rate is so-and-so. There's tons of demand. I see this in senior housing all the time. There's tons of demand for senior housing. Yes, but at what price point? And does the, do the economics actually work? So it's and ability to pay. The Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts have figured this out. One day a year they go sell apples or sell, the, sell cookies. Where do you think they go to sell cookies? Do they go to the roughest neighborhood or do they go to the best part of town? Why? There's more money. Ability to pay. Sometimes you go, sir, would you like to buy an apple? Here, here's 20 bucks. Keep the apple. Now you get to sell the apple again. So the scouts have figured this out. How come real estate investors haven't? <laughs> right? It's nuts. This was taught to me by an Irishman. Uh, uh, sorry, he's Welsh. His name is Terry Matthews. He's a billionaire. He's my local neighborhood billionaire. Founder of Mitel, founder of Newbridge Networks. Became the single largest shareholder of Alcatel, if that means anything to you in the world of telecom which is a multi-billion dollar company. He sold Newbridge Networks to Alcatel for seven billion. And he was my chairman and CEO when I, in the company I took public as well. And he taught me to play the bagpipe. So what does that mean? When you are running a private company or a public company, it doesn't matter. Sometimes you blow, sometimes you squeeze the bag, but you want the sound to come out in this really awful monotone. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you want. You want consistency in your business. So in your business, one of your goals is to play the bagpipes, which means irrespective of what's happening in the macro market, you want that drone, that, that monotone coming out all the time. So play the bagpipes. From the downturn to today, we have largely not changed our financial model. Very, very little. We've always planned for inflation to be running between two to three percent and we still are today even though it's much higher today we've planned for interest rates to normalize we have not changed our cap rate assumptions even though cap rates might have changed in the marketplace and i get a lot of crit criticism for that often but i feel confident that over time that's going to be a good decision so people talk about cap rate compression you know there's markets in the u.s right now Denver, Austin, Nashville, um, I can go down the list, where the cap rates are 3.5%. That's the market cap rate. That's what people are willing to pay for a good quality asset. I could never, in good conscience, 
underwrite a project using a cap rate that started with the number three. I just can't. I can't bring myself emotionally to do it. And yet people say, well, yeah, but that's the market. I'm sorry. It will not be the market long term. So markets go through these cycles. I'm playing the bagpipes. We always want asymmetric risk, which means I want to be protected on the downside. I want to see the upside. Also want to be in a situation where, and well, part of that is taking advantage of non-recourse debt. So what's the difference between recourse and non-recourse debt? With recourse debt, you sign this thing called a personal guarantee, joint and several, which means that if you mess up, they're taking your house, your car, your kids, everything. We don't like to sign personal guarantees ever. Occasionally we do it, if there's not much choice, but most of the time we're willing to pay a higher rate of interest for non-recourse debt. And that's super important. Oftentimes I hear from, from other investors, oh, but you can't get non-recourse debt for new construction. Who told you that? We do it all the time. But if you don't know to even look, or you don't even know to ask. All right, so we'll just talk one more minute about non-recourse debt. There are three guarantees typically with a non-recourse construction loan. Um, and the first one is what's called a bad boy carve-out. This is where you basically guarantee not to, com not to commit fraud. She shouldn't be difficult to do, okay? <laughs> so that's guarantee number one. If you commit fraud, the loan is full recourse. The second is to guarantee completion, which means you have to have enough reserves that you can get to the finish line. And then the third is there will typically be what's called environmental indemnity, and you'll usually spend a couple of weeks arguing with the lender on the limits of that indemnity, uh, but you know, arguing with the lawyers. Those are typically the three exceptions to to recourse, and we call that non-recourse debt. But still, you are not signing your life away. We're comfortable signing these guarantees. That's also part of that asymmetric risk. The other thing we want is we want an interim exit. I think Kevin O'Leary, famous on Shark Tank, says, if you have no exit strategy, that's called a prison for your money. If you can't get your money out, that's a prison for your money. So an exit, if it's a sale, put 1031 exchange on the side, that's a taxable event. But a refinance is not a taxable event. If you can get your chips off the table, return capital to investors, now you have the proverbial no money down deal, now you're asymmetric risk, you change your risk profile. Got no money tied up in the deal, still have a reasonable debt to equity ratio, but the risk profile has changed. You wanna be thinking that way, that's how wealth is created, is by protecting yourself on the downside and having no limits on the upside. And you'll see that come out in the rest of today's talk. So why do downturns happen? It's often because there's excess supply in the marketplace. And that can happen for a whole variety of reasons. It could be a miscalculation. It could be a drop in demand. It could be an artificial situation, like a regulatory change, or a war, or a trade war, or, my goodness, a pandemic. All of these things can cause supply shocks. So we, we often don't plan for that, and economists do a terrible job, I mean absolutely terrible job, modeling supply shocks. It's as if they don't exist in their models. They simply look at the normal supply-demand metrics. When shortages occur, it's because often, and this is really understanding human nature, imagine if you're looking to purchase from a supplier and the supplier tells you, I'm only gonna deliver 90% of what you order. You're on allocation. What are you gonna do? 
you're going to order extra. You'll order 120% of what you need because you know you're only going to get 90% and you know that the 90 might get degraded further. So you're going to order extra. That's what everybody does in a supply shortage. Now, if you're the supplier, you're looking at this going, oh my goodness, look at all this demand. We need to increase production. Now you get inventory forming at the supplier because of increased production. You get inventory, shadow inventory at the end customer that the supplier can't see because now they're hoarding. Who went out and bought toilet paper during the pandemic? Yeah. The shelves were empty. You thought it was a scarcity issue. You went out and bought toilet paper. For some of you, you bought four weeks of supply. Some of you bought six months of supply. Don't lie. I know you did. Right? <laughs> So then all of a sudden, you say, oh, there isn't a supply issue any longer. And then you didn't buy toilet paper for four months. Now, if you're the supplier of toilet paper, you're going, where did all the demand go? But think about it. Did the rate of consumption of toilet paper change? No. At all? Not at all. Everyone went about the same time every day. <laughs> Population didn't change. Consumption didn't change, but that was an economic cycle. And it was simply created by the perception of scarcity. Well, you can take that same concept and apply it to virtually any commodity. Happens all the time. So now demand stops, orders dry up, the supplier says, oh, I've got too much people, I need to reduce expenses. So they hunker down, hoping for the recovery. They don't know when it's coming back. They lay off their people, and eventually it works itself out but that's the economic cycle. Do you know what the cause of the Great Depression was? Anybody know? It was an economic cycle, like every other economic cycle. Bank leverage was part of it. When, during the First World War, most countries abandoned the gold standard. And then post-war, they tried to revert to the gold standard, but it became apparent that there was not enough gold in the world to back the currency that was out there. So what happened is central banks started tightening monetary policy, trying to rein in the amount of liquidity in the market to match the amount of gold, because they couldn't produce more gold quickly. So they tried to reduce the money supply. When they reduced the money supply, simply because there wasn't as much money in the system, prices fell. Now if you're a farmer and you've got a mortgage on your farm, and now you're getting less dollars for your bushel of corn, that's a recipe for bankruptcy. And that's what happened. So this is where I disagree a little bit with Peter Schiff when he talked about deflation not being a problem. Deflation is a problem. Because when you remember what, what Russ said, he talked about debt being a claim on future earnings, on future income. If that future income shrinks, you're insolvent. And it created mass insolvency. We didn't have deposit insurance on, at the banks. It causes bank, caused bank collapses. And the, the, the whole economy was unprepared for that. If you read more on the Federal Reserve, you will learn that they admit that the Federal Reserve caused the Great Depression. Okay? So Robert Kiyosaki talks often about the three sides of a coin. There's heads, there's tails, and there's the edge of the coin. Well, you want to be standing on the edge of the coin and actually look at both sides. I recently read a book by Ben Bernanke. It's actually quite a good book. I encourage you to read it. I also you encourage you to read this book, and I'm very excited to get a signed copy. I've been reading it on Kindle, but I'm very excited to get a signed copy. And this is going to be two sides of the same coin, looking at the same thing from different perspectives. What I got from Ben Bernanke's book 
was an understanding of how the Fed works from a model perspective, how they think about the economy. He says things that Jay Powell can't say, because, but he understands it because he sat in that chair. So there's a tremendous amount of insight in reading Ben Bernanke's book. Now there's a little bit of revisionist history happening in there and I don't agree with everything he says, that doesn't matter. It's under getting that perspective. This book talks about some of the flaws. It, the Federal Reserve is a very insular organization. It's highly academic and they spend so much of their time talking about what these computer models are telling them about what's happening in the economy. So they're very focused on this, the computer simulation and they spend much less time with their head up looking at the horizon, looking around to see what's actually happening on Main Street. By the time they figured out that what's happening on Main Street isn't matching the model, they're behind the curve. But they're very focused on the model. And that's, I think, one of the major criticisms that, that, uh, that talks about, and she's absolutely right. I even got that from Ben Bernanke's book, and I know that because as, as an engineer, we spent an awful lot of time developing computer models for things that would work in real life. And we are always checking to make sure that the model matches reality. And I, I've seen many, many instances where it doesn't. And they have the same problem. Anyone who spends their life modeling things has to check to make sure the model is accurate. The Federal Reserve Reform Act of 1977 defined the dual mandate of the Fed. You, and it's really two things. Maximize employment, full employment, and maintain price stability, which is essentially managing inflation. Now, I said to you yesterday that I've developed this skill of predicting the future. And, it, and, it, and I say this with zero arrogance at all. And I'm gonna show you how you can do this too. I'm not doing anything magical. I'm just paying attention. Just paying attention and seeing things that are super obvious if you, pay, if you choose to look. I report it on my podcast weeks, sometimes months, before it appears in the Wall Street Journal. And it's just happened often enough that now I feel confident in making these predictions because it's just so obvious, so obvious. So on June the 2nd, I put out a podcast called Why the Fed Wants People to Lose Their Jobs. That's a pretty bold statement. But once you understand the way that they're modeling the economy, it's obvious. So what does maximizing employment mean? So it, and we've heard Jay Powell talk about this several times where he said, the employment is strong. He's talked about the employment rate. The economy is strong. We need, we're going to have a softish landing. We may see unemployment rise. That's code for we're going to cause unemployment to rise. Why is that? When you have full employment, employees have too much leverage. They demand pay increases. And what that does is it perpetuates the wage price spiral. Prices have gone up. Boss, I need a raise to deal with the consumer price index. Okay, here's 10%. Oh shoot, now my payroll's gone up 10%, I gotta raise prices. And it perpetuates the cycle. We saw it in the 1970s. It, it was very, very difficult spiral to break. The Fed knows that they have to boost unemployment in order to break the wage price spiral. This morning, the Wall Street Journal, headline is, higher unemployment rate looms as the Fed fights inflation. And in the very first paragraph of this article, it's talking about comments from Chairman Powell about how the things that are happening in terms of monetary policy will push up unemployment. Am I a genius? No. No, I'm just paying attention. 
been a variety of different recessions dating back to, and I'm, I can go way back, the oil embargo, the OPEC oil embargo was a supply shock in the 1970s. That was stagflation. Stagflation is often caused by an artificial supply side constraint. The second bout of stagflation is happening right now because we have supply shocks produced originally by the pandemic and now being perpetuated. The 1982 um, recession, I'm calling the Paul Volcker recession, where he pushed interest rates to 18 and to 20 percent in order to tame inflation, but he had to do that in order to break that cycle. We actually had a natural demand cycle in around 1990. That was perhaps the first real textbook recession in, in, in all of this series of, of cycles. Then we had the dot-com bubble where the dot-communists were defeated, and then we had the 2008 financial <laughs> crisis. <laughs> all these other things were artificial. These were artificial things that happened in the market. So what happens in inflation? Three things happen. It erodes purchasing power for those on fixed income. It wipes out savings. And this is the beautiful part, it wipes out debt. Now, what is your response to inflation? If you have the consumer mindset, what you do is you say, well, shoot, that toilet paper that I bought this week is going to be more expensive in six months. I'm going to take whatever spare cash is in my bank account and I'm going to load up on toilet paper, on canned goods, on things that have a durable shelf life. When you go to South America and you look at how people handle inflation, that's what they're doing. They're going out, they're spending every penny that comes into their paycheck on stuff that they know they're going to need six months from now, a year from now, because they know it's going to cost more. That's the consumer mindset in an inflationary environment. There's no savings, because you know your savings are being eroded. You want to put money into hard assets that you know are going to be more expensive in the future. That's the consumer mindset. The investor mindset says, oh, what if I put money into an income producing asset? That's very different. This is going to generate much more value than a can of Campbell's soup. Now, we're going to go through a little example here just to make it super crystal clear. Imagine for a moment that you bought a property and you're going to buy this property. We'll say that this property costs $1 million and you're going to finance it 20% in equity and 80% in conventional debt. So you've got 200,000 in cash and you've got 800,000 in debt. Now let's imagine that inflation is 10%. A year from now, that property is going to price for how much? 1.1 million. Didn't say it's worth 1.1, it's priced at 1.1. It did not go up in value. It's the same house, same number of bedrooms, same number of windows. Nothing's changed. It's the same house. Supply demand didn't change, but it's now priced at 1.1 million. Let's imagine for a moment that you made no principal pay down on your loan in that first year. So you still have 800,000 in debt. How much is your equity? 300,000. 300,000. So in one year, you went from having 200,000 in equity to 300,000 in equity. What other investment could you do that will give you a 50% rate of return and you only had to sleep for that whole year? Right? Now I'm cheating a little bit because it's not really a 50% rate of return because that money's worth 10% less than it, right? So in inflation adjusted dollars, it's a 35% rate of return. 
I'm sorry for the math error, but that's still not bad. And you did nothing. All you did is you made sure that you were on the right side of the trade. So purchasing power gets wiped out, savings get wiped out, and debt gets wiped out. If you go out and you get a 35 or 40 year HUD loan, fully amortized, a 3.5% non-recourse assumable loan, that's a license to print money. That's a license to print money because it is so much less than what things are, than, than the rate of inflation. Okay, so this is why inflation's your friend. There are supply gluts happening all over the economy. Patio furniture's on sale this year at Target. They order too much. The, these things are appearing everywhere. Inventory to sales, and I know at the back of the room this is really hard to read, but inventory to sales is way up at all of the major retailers. Way up. They've been hoarding inventory. They've been building inventory. Why? Because money was cheap. It's not cheap anymore. Or it's becoming more expensive. It was better to have security of supply and pay a couple of points of interest than to be unable to, to serve your customers. So everyone was building inventory. Lowe's today is sitting on $20 billion of inventory. $20 billion for one company. Expect some sales at Lowe's this year. <laughs> Just saying, right? This is lumber prices. They've been all over the place. It's been making headlines, but you gotta understand what's happening. I've been predicting the fall in lumber prices since the beginning of the year. Now you'll notice that at the beginning of the year, prices were rising. So I'll tell you why they rose. There were rainstorms in British Columbia in November. It washed out roads and railway lines. You could not get lumber outside of British Columbia. British Columbia supplies 50% of Canada's softwood lumber and 14% of the US softwood lumber. They had to increase, but I knew the roads would get fixed. I knew the roads would get fixed, so this was temporary. People that needed supply, they would secure their supply, especially the big players, and then they would eventually bleed down their inventory, they would stop ordering, and then prices would fall precipitously, which they did. And then the analysts said, oh, but we have the summer construction boom coming, so they went up again in May, and then towards the end of May, they were falling. They were falling 12, 15% in one day. How do you plan anything in that kind of price volatility? But that's the environment we're in. So developing in today's environment is very fluid. It means that almost everything's unpredictable. Quotes have a shelf life that are about the same as tomatoes. Okay. This is a roof trust quote, seven days from date shown. If you don't sign, send it back in, we'll requote it. You can expect delays. This is a letter from the mayor of Middleton, Idaho. 182 day moratorium on all new development applications. That's a big deal if you were planning to do a project. Now you gotta sit on your hands for six months. It's a very fluid, very unpredictable environment. But you've gotta deal with it. Doors are critical, windows are a critical pinch point. 16, 20 weeks lead time. Are you gonna start framing your building if you can't get windows, you're gonna be leaving your building open and unsecured for months while you wait for windows. It's a difficult decision, it makes scheduling very, very difficult. We were told air conditioners, 30 weeks lead time from Goodman. A week later, we were told you could get anything you want 10 days. How do you plan? It's a very fluid environment. What happens is a lot of major contractors unsure about supply place multiple orders. So they'll order from Goodman, and they'll order from Ream, and they'll order from somebody else, and see who delivers first, and then they'll cancel the order. All of a sudden, suppliers sitting on a bucket load of inventory that they hadn't planned on. 
This is what happens in a supply constrained environment is that inventory, shadow inventory pops up all over the place. Quite frankly, we don't sweat it. We don't get upset by all of these claims of 16, 20, 30 weeks lead time. We don't get stressed by that because we know it's not real. We know that lumber prices are coming down. We know that air conditioners will be available when we need them. We don't really know, we believe. Okay. Talked a little bit about cap rate. Cap rate, as everybody knows, is a very simple calculation. It's a measure of yield. We make the distinction between cap rate and yield on cost. Cap rate is what the market is willing to pay for an asset as a percentage of, it's a multiple of net income, basically it. It's the reciprocal, it's one over that. Yield on cost is the same calculation, but it's for what you actually paid. So I always wanna see a spread between the yield on cost. So let's say I build a building and it cost me, let's say 6.5% yield to build that building and the marketplace is trading that same product at four or four and a half. There's a spread between those two yield numbers. And it's that spread, that's, that's where your value creation is. If, you, if there's no spread between those two numbers, you're taking a $100 bill and trading it for 520s. There's not much point in that. It's a lot of work for that trade. So you, you wanna make sure that there's that spread always, even in a downturn environment. Okay, I'm not gonna go through all of these details. You gotta have really strong systems and we use the same underwriting process in good times and in bad. We get market data. We don't just rely on, we don't just drink our own Kool-Aid. We work with Yardi. Anyone know what Yardi is? Yardi is the preeminent so, um, property management software for large institutional players. And because of that, they have access to all of the data from all the landlords. So they can redact the data, but they have real market statistics, not just asking rents, real settled rent checks that settle every month. And we get the market data from Yardi in a very specific local area. If this is our building, if we put a dog, we draw a three mile radius, we see who are, the, who are the other properties. And we get the real data, we get that in a day. We don't spend thousands of dollars in commissioning a market study. We get this in real time and we use that in our own underwriting. You gotta have those systems so that you know what's happening in real time in the marketplace. You get all kinds of really high quality data. What are your demographics? What's the age? How many people drive a car? How far do they drive to work? All of that information appears on your desk the next day and you use it in your underwriting. What parking ratio do you need for your building? I'm close to a subway stop. How many, what should my parking ratio be? 0 0.8, 1 1.1, 1 1.2? How do you know? You get the data and you get competitive information so that you know what all of the properties around you are doing in terms of asking rents, rent per square foot, you get all of that information. There's no secrets in this industry. You're not guessing. Well, if you're doing it right, you're not guessing. You're, you're working with hard data. And then when you get an appraisal, the appraisal is never a surprise, ever. And if it is a surprise, it's because the appraiser made a mistake and you've got the data to argue with them and show them where they made their mistake. And then they'll usually go correct it. It was mentioned yesterday, there's oversupply right now in industrial, big time oversupply. Amazon built, they doubled their warehouse space during the pandemic. They built 185 million square feet during the pandemic. 
and they came out in their earnings announcement said that they were somewhere between 10 to 30 million uh, square feet over what they need. But it's even worse than that. This is an example, this particular building is not far from my house. It's 2.7 million square feet. They're only leasing 17% of it. So they're only counting 435,000 square feet in, the, in what they're calling they built too much. They're not counting the rest of that big building that they don't own and they're not leasing that is sitting vacant. And there's no plan right now. The, the guy who built the building for Amazon is going, oh my God, what do I do now? So the, it's a much worse picture than even what Amazon is saying publicly, okay? When you look at your development budget, there's always risk. It doesn't matter whether it's good time or bad. You always have risk. Typically, you've got capital raise risk. You have risk on your site work. That's always there. You don't know what's underground. You've done your geotech, but maybe you've got bedrock in places where you didn't expect it. Now you've got a blast or even worse chip. And now you've added a few million dollars to your site costs because you just didn't know what was underground. You've got your leasing risk and your refinance risk. Those risks are always there. But in today's environment, you've got a few more. You have entitlement risks. Cities are much more cautious. They're much more difficult to work with in today's environment than they've ever been. And I mean all across North America, and we're developing in a lot of cities right now. You have highly volatile construction costs. So your hard costs are all over the place. They're up and down, one day to the next. But remember, we're playing the bagpipes. So we figure out how to get this so it's all smoothed out and it just comes out sounding calm and predictable. Because we have to, we have no other choice. You've got interest rate risk and all the other risks are there, but now you've got a few more that you didn't have even a few months ago. And this is where you have to get creative and start doing things like value engineering, doing component substitutions. For example, people use these engineered floor trusses if you're doing wood frame construction they're very common, they've been used historically because they're cheaper. Well today, a 16 foot length of that is 125 bucks. You can buy the dimensional lumber, the old fashioned way, for 70 bucks. Why don't you use the dimensional lumber? It's cheaper, it's got better fire rating, and, but people are sometimes slow to adapt. You've gotta have a team that's focused on value engineering your product so that you can figure out where those hidden cost savings are. Because the GC is not gonna hand that to you. You've got to have people that are willing to drill deep and make those changes in the design. You've got to always stick to the fundamentals, choose growing cities, choose places that have growing employment. Super important. I know there's a couple of investors in here that are in Detroit and a few other cities that have been shrinking in population. I will not invest in those cities, and I mean no disrespect to anyone when I say that. I want to see influx of population. I want to see growth. That's fundamental. I want to see money coming in. I'm a Boy Scout. Not a girl guide, I'm a Boy Scout. I want to sell apples in the best neighborhood. You want to do things that are differentiated in the market. I I'm a big believer in the amenities arms race. I want to be able to deliver things that you cannot easily find in the market, whether that means of EV charging at every parking spot, whether it means e-commerce lockers both dry and refrigerated in the unsecured part of the lobby. I want to deliver amenities that are differentiated in the marketplace so that when people see my property, they say, I want to live there. And it's not even a question of picking another place because, it, you see, when, when the value is not clear, I think Robert said it, it, the discussion comes down to price. But when the value is clear, oh, I work and I want my groceries delivered, oh, and they have refrigerated lockers, how cool is that? that that's a lifestyle choice. Fundamentals, land use multiplier. This is the land lottery. Land 
is valued based on what you can do with it. It's not based on anything else. It's based on what you can do with it. So agricultural land, three to 4,000 an acre, most places in the country. If you can put a 30-story building, it could be millions per acre. If you can put a residential subdivision, two, 300,000 an acre. So you can create value simply by changing land use. Do I care if interest rates went up 2% in this environment? I don't care. It doesn't even factor into the equation at all because I'm creating so much value through the entitlement process. This is the project we're doing right now. Uh, it's just outside Colorado Springs. The Colorado Springs is to the left of that white dotted line and there's the airport at the edge of the city and to the east of that there's almost nothing. That little yellow circle, that's Shriver Air Force Base, that's Space Command. So when U.S. is sending intelligence to the Ukrainians, it's coming right from there. And that square is 1,783 acres that we are in the process of annexing into the city of Colorado Springs. We're going from 10,000 an acre, which is our purchase price, to 200,000 an acre simply through the entitlement and annexation process. I don't care what interest rates are doing. I don't care at all. So we fund this 100% out of equity. Yes, it might take longer. It might be six months delayed. I don't care. These things are independent of what's happening in the macro economy. Is this making sense? Yep. Right? So developing a downturn, use debt carefully, use it responsibly. That's all I got. Thank you very much.